Take your Bibles today and turn to John chapter 11. We are going to finish the chapter of John 11 today as we have looked um, in, our, in our series in the book of John, the Gospel of John, that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And we've looked in John chapter 11 looking at Jesus as the resurrection and the life. Uh, it began with Jesus receiving word uh, that his friend Lazarus was sick. And Jesus' declaration that, that this sickness would not end in death, but would be for the glory of God. And we saw Jesus and his disciples make their way to Bethany, where Lazarus was. And by the time they arrived, he had been dead for four days. And then we saw Jesus declaring himself as the resurrection of life to Martha. And uh, we saw the reaction of Martha and Mary. And then we saw Jesus uh, raise Lazarus together. Last, when we were together last time, we saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And now... That resurrection brings about with it a response. And so in John chapter 11 today, verses 45 through 57, we're going to see responding to the resurrection and the life. I invite you to follow along in the book of John in chapter 11 as we read these verses together. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Father, we thank you for this time we have set aside in our service today to read, to study, to listen to the word of God together. And we ask that you would quiet our hearts and minds, that you would speak to us through your word that it would continue to break apart the hardness of our hearts, that you would show us our sin and point us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. For one who may be here today who has never truly trusted you as Savior, you would show them the hope that is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. For Christians today, that you would show us the fervor and the commitment that a life of a disciple requires. And you would draw us even deeper into our relationships with you and help us to depend more on your grace in our lives. Lord, we pray that nothing would get in the way of the message. You would help me to, to not get in the way of what you want to do here today. 
you would receive the honor and the glory for it. In your name we pray. Amen. What is the message of the Bible? Have you ever considered that before? If you had to be asked that question and boil it all down into one thing, what is the message of the Word of God? Maybe it is something you've thought through, maybe it's something you've been asked, and maybe you've heard lots of different questions, you know, answers or had lots of different thoughts. But I would argue that there's only one correct answer. The message of the Bible is Jesus Christ. That is who the Bible points to. From the very beginning in the book of Genesis, it points us ahead to Jesus Christ. And throughout the Gospels, we see the ministry of Jesus and who he is. We see his death and his resurrection. And then all throughout the rest of the New Testament writings, it points back to because Jesus died and rose again, because you have placed faith in him, this is what it means. Specifically, the scriptures point us to the death of Jesus, who died to pay the price of sin. The cross is pivotal in the history of redemption, and thus it is part of the Bible's main thrust. However, the cross is not something that we are fascinated by because we are a people fascinated by a cruel death. Instead, it is because our eternity hinges on the death and resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus has not died, there is no payment for sin. If Jesus has not risen, there is no hope for eternity. Sin requires payment. The Bible declares to us that Jesus made the payment for our sin and offers us eternal life in himself. In John chapter 11, the gospel of John now turns towards the cross. The power that Jesus exercises over death as the resurrection and the life proves Jesus' power over death even before his own resurrection. Jesus' power and authority is undeniable. And we see once again people doing what what all people must do when faced with Jesus' identity and power. They are responding in either faith or rejection. And what you see here in this passage before us today is because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. My personal response of faith in his life, death, and resurrection matters for eternity. We all have been faced with things in life where our, our opinion or our decision matters or doesn't matter. I mean, I'm guilty of saying many times in life, well, not that my opinion matters or not that what I believe matters, but, and then I go on to tell you what I believe anyway, right? Because I just want to say whatever words I have in my brain, right? You ever done that? But your belief, your, your um, attitude towards who Jesus is matters for your eternity. In fact, there are a million decisions that you will make between now and, you know, pick a date. None of them carries anywhere near the amount of weight as the decision that you will make about what will you do with Jesus. And then what, what you will do if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as a disciple of him, what will you do with what Jesus is doing in your heart and life and what God is doing through his word in your life? And we see before us today, then, the, the different types of reactions that come when faced with the reality of who Jesus is, once again, here in the book of John. And then see, we see here in verses 45 and 46, you have all the points, okay? So don't get ahead of yourself, all right? You see verses 45 and 46, 
the choice that people make in regard to Jesus. And in verse 45, the first choice is you have those who express believing hearts. It says, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. Jesus has just performed, arguably, the greatest miracle of his earthly ministry. A man, Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, has been raised back to life again by the word of Jesus. And all those who had gathered in the home to mourn with and to comfort the family were now witnesses to what Jesus had done. Think about that. All of these people had come to comfort, to mourn, to be there for their friends, to carry out the duties, and now they've just witnessed the unthinkable. As seen previously, they followed Mary out of the home and watched in what could only be described as amazement as Jesus performed this sign. They heard his prayer that attested to the fact that he was sent by God the Father with whom he is one, and so once again, people in the life of Jesus are brought to a crossroads. And the direction that one takes at such a crossroads is determined by what that individual does with the information he has received. Here, in verse 45, we are told that there are many who observed this miracle, they contemplated it in their mind, with their minds, and it led them to the point of making the greatest decision they could ever make, that they professed faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah, the deliverer from sin, and the resurrection and the life. That's what it talks about here in verse 45, when it says that they believed in him. The miracle of Lazarus' resurrection wasn't the only miracle that took place that day. The miracle of redemption and regeneration, the giving of spiritual life, also took place in the hearts of many who were gathered. I just met this morning, uh, we just started a new class this morning for our college and career, and we were were sharing our our salvation testimonies this morning, and many of us grew up in church, and I've shared that with you before, that that I have that same background, and and so we're we're very fond of saying, well, I mean, my testimony is not very exciting because I grew up going to church. And I challenged them this morning with this thought that any time someone places faith in Jesus Christ, that's exciting. That's a miracle. It doesn't matter if you were drugged, you know, drugged to church your entire life. It doesn't matter if you were in drugs, okay? You see how I did that, okay? It doesn't matter where you come from. Sin is sin. And a life that finds new life in Jesus Christ is a miracle. And that's exactly what you see here. You see a man who was physically raised. And then you see these people who are spiritually raised as they believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Salvation comes by trust in Jesus alone. It comes by observing the evidence, weighing it in the heart and mind, and acting on it in belief. Please understand that professing Jesus as your Lord and Savior is not something you, do, you should do emotionally or even hastily. It is not an emotional decision. You who know Jesus may, have not, may, have, may not have heard the message of Jesus many times before you realized that you had a need for personal faith. But still others, you may have needed to hear that message again and again as the Holy Spirit was hammering away in your heart and your life convicting you of sin and drawing you to himself. But still others, you may hear the message today and you still have not placed faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you continue to hear and weigh the things that God is teaching you and telling you. And I'm, I'm, I'm 
I'm begging, I'm urging, I'm, I'm asking you to continue to weigh that and understand that this is who Jesus is. And this is what he wants to do for your life. To save you from your sin. To give you life in himself. You are invited by John to, as, he, as we saw in the, in the first couple of chapters, come and see. I saw that yesterday um, when I was driving somewhere. I was driving down the road in the last couple of days. And I saw in the back of somebody's car in Midland, it was a bumper sticker. It said, come and see. And I thought, that's really cool, you know. I don't know if it's come and see my bad driving. But, you know, I, tend to think, I chose to think that it was a Bible reference, you know, come and see. And I was reminded of that as we, as we look at this here in John. That John, at the beginning, these disciples, as Jesus called them, he, they were invited to come and see who Jesus is, what he did, and place their faith in him. Jesus' message of salvation himself through the grace of God is then authenticated by his incredible power as God. It is good and right for us to trust in him, for he is the only way to eternity and the only way to new life. But wherever there are those who believe, you will always find a second group. And in verse 46, you find here not believing hearts, but antagonistic hearts. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. So while there are many in Bethany who that day believe, there are still others who do not believe. We see here the exercise of the free will of man that God has given. There's a, a, a way in which the sovereignty of God and the free will of man work in perfect concert. And, and no, I can't explain all the little details of that to you because God is infinite, right? But God and his sovereignty moves in lives, but, man, but has also given man the, the ability to choose what he's going to do with what God has done in his heart. God stirs the hearts but not all will respond in faith. Some of these Jews who were present turn away once again from Jesus. They run from the Messiah, who really is their only true hope of salvation, and they run to those who tout the law, works, self-righteousness, and pride. That's who they're running to in the Pharisees. Now, this was not, they were not running to the Pharisees so they could ask them for help understanding these things. This was not a, an appeal to some spiritual leadership. This was not uh, them running to the Pharisees so they could evangelize a hostile group. Instead, they were running to the Pharisees to inform them on Jesus' latest activities to see what they would do next. And let me remind you that the intentions of the Israelite religious leaders are very clear in regard to Jesus and his followers. The incident regarding the healing of the man born blind that was recorded in John 11 makes those intentions evident. They had taken actions against those who identified with Jesus. So imagine, if you will, the dismay of the Pharisees when all of these people come with these reports that now Jesus has raised a man from the dead. Just imagine, if you would, right? You don't like the guy already right? You're, you're opposing him at every turn. He, he's now, he healed this man that was born blind. Everybody knows it. And now he's done what? Right? He's raised a man from the dead. Here was yet another mountain of evidence that they would have to overcome in the rejection of Jesus. And by the way, that's precisely what rejection of Jesus always is. It is always rejecting the truth. It is always a refusal to believe 
the truth of what Jesus says and who he is. It is always a choice to value sin more than personal faith. And these rejectors from Bethany make their report, and then we get the full scope of that rejection that takes place on the high religious council of Israel in the subsequent verses. Secondly, today, in verses 47 through 54, we observe the council that convenes. In verses 47 and 48, we're introduced to what we may call the problem that they have. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. The Pharisees did not on their own hold any official power. They were very influential. Uh, They were especially um, popular with what we may call the common folk. Okay, that's what they would would call them um, as they looked down on them from this religious class. But they were really the lesser of the two major factions and groups the, the power and the authority really belong to the Sadducees when you have these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Thus, they, the Pharisees moved for a gathering of what is known as the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious body of Israel. That's what you see here in verse 47. The Sanhedrin is gathering. That makes, that's made up of the Pharisees and the high priests or, or the chief priests who would be belonging to the Sadducees. And as they assemble, they ask themselves a most important question. What are we going to do? That's what's asked. What are we going to do? They have come face to face again with the evidence of who Jesus is. Notice what they say here. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What shall we do for this man works many? What's that last word? Signs. Well, you may have miracles in your translation, but the word uh, that it goes back to in the Greek is this word that John has used all throughout, and they use here again, the word signs, which talks about a mark of authentication. So don't miss something here. They cannot deny what has happened. They're not denying it. They're actually acknowledging, look what he's done. He's authenticated time after time, after time who he is and what he says. In view here would perhaps be specifically those things that are most recently recorded by John. Probably the healing of the man born blind and the resurrection of Lazarus. Those are two very strong evidences of who Jesus is and the most recent that has occurred. These miracles prove assuredly who he is. So the evidence cannot be argued away. So the question that we sometimes ask, what will you do with Jesus, is applicable here. But these men do not ask what they shall do in order to settle their eternity with Jesus. No, they're asking what they shall do in order to rest, wrestle away control from the, of the people, the situation, and the hearts of the nation. Now, I mentioned this many messages ago from, from the book of John, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees normally are enemies of one another. They don't get along. However, They come together in opposition to Jesus in order to preserve their own selves. And what you're going to see here all throughout this passage is the self-focus that these men have. Because that's who they are. They're very very consumed with themselves and their own um, personal prideful righteousness, self-righteousness. No, what they're doing here is, is they're looking at Jesus' influence And how that has not been squashed by their actions thus far. So now they need a new plan. Because if they don't do something, they fear 
the entire nation will soon believe in Jesus. And we shake our heads and we go, well, that's not a bad thing. To them, it is a bad thing. Now, now they don't necessarily mean that everyone's going to accept Jesus as Savior from sin. I I do want you to understand that, okay? They don't necessarily mean that everyone's going to look at him and say, oh, he's the Savior. What they're worried about is they're fearing everyone will now embrace Jesus as their view of whatever that may be as the political Messiah of Israel. I mentioned before that, that over the years, people had misunderstood what, what the Messiah was sent to do. They had misunderstood the passages of the Old Testament that he would come and die for sin. Instead, they saw him as someone who would come and throw off the Roman oppressors and, and, and deliver the nation. And Jesus has, has told them time and again why he has come, and they have missed him. So with the Passover drawing near, the nationalistic feelings, once again, are about to ride high. And so here's what they think, that if the masses embrace Jesus as the Messiah and raise trouble with Rome, it's going to put all of them in jeopardy. They fear that the peace that they enjoyed, that they had enjoyed for, 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 such a t- for some time now, would be broken, and Rome would take away their place, they say, and nation. Now, the place that they refer to is undoubtedly the temple, is what they're talking about. It represented to them, to the Sanhedrin. Now, now to us today, we look at the temple and it, re- it should represent the worship of God and the, and, the, and the way that God was pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. Well, to them, to the Sanhedrin, this ruling council, it represented their power. They had great authority and they enjoyed incredible privilege because of their efforts to create for themselves an exclusive religious class. So should the people embrace Jesus, they would now lose this position. And they fear then that the Romans will scatter them throughout the empire, taking away their country as well. Pastor John MacArthur in his commentary on the book of John said it this way, For the Sanhedrin, Jesus threatened the status quo. Its members were not judging the situation based on the objective standards of right and wrong, but on how they would be affected. They were viewing things very selfishly. They knew the truth, and they refused to embrace it. They did not lack information, but the humility to accept and act on this information in faith. And the same is true today, by the way, of those who reject Jesus. The truth of the matter is that many in our day do not wish to change the status quo of their lives. Instead, they buy into the lie of Satan, and the lie is this, that if you embrace Jesus, that means you're going to have to give up your sin and therefore sacrifice any pleasure and happiness you have in your life. Well, the truth of the matter is this. Yes, in order to come to Jesus, you will have to give up your sin. You must renounce your sinful state in order to accept Jesus as your Savior. That's what the scriptures say, that that we must confess, we must say the same thing about ourselves and our sin that God says, that it is repulsive, that it keeps us out of eternity, that it is something that, that if we continue in it, we will spend eternity in hell paying for our sin. But the further truth, and and the further truth is yes, that if you will then live as a savior, you accept, uh, I'm sorry, as a, as a disciple, after you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, you will continue to be convicted of your sin and you will continue to be called into a deeper relationship with Jesus as your Lord by giving up these things, saying no to sin in his power. But the greater truth is this, you will not be sacrificing true joy, fulfillment, and happiness by giving up these things. 
See, this is the biggest lie that Satan will tell you, that sin makes you happy. That sin is okay. That sin will bring you all the fulfillment that you need. But if you have spent any time in your life, whether a believer or in sin, you would understand that isn't very true. Because sin always promises more than it can deliver. Sin always brings with it the feelings of guilt and despair. And what do we often do? We just cover that up with more sin and hope it'll go away. Does it go away? The answer is no, it doesn't. Sin has consequences. And for what these sins give you in exchange for some fleeting pleasure isn't worth it. Sometimes those consequences are seen in the temporary things that come from sin. I mean, you look around in our world today and you see those who engage in sin and the terrible things that come into their life because of their sin. But ultimately, all sin leads us to spiritual death. And so whether or not you, sacri- you suffer what may be considered some of the greatest consequences in this temporary life of your sin or not, if you continue in your sin and reject Jesus Christ, one day you will face consequences for your sin and there's no going back from that. Accepting Jesus as Savior means renouncing your place in the kingdom of darkness. And instead, by the work and the grace of God, you will be placed into the family of God in that choice of faith. Jesus' enemies here could not deny his miracles. And so, they needed a plan to keep things the same for themselves in the rejection of him. Because see, here's the other thing. Rejection of Jesus also brings with it an attempt to mitigate the consequences of such a choice. The Sanhedrin in Jesus' day did it, and the people, the people today do it as well. You and I, we try to explain our sin away. We try to validate our sinful choices. Or we even convince ourselves, well, I haven't really rejected Jesus. I just really like, and we fill in the blank with whatever it is. You can try to explain away your sin all you want, but your heart will always, will always betray your true beliefs. And you will one day have to live with those consequences. Don't miss that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are deeply religious men, but they are lost in sin. You and I today can say a lot and do a lot of good things, but without personal faith in Jesus, it doesn't mean anything. And a good way to answer the question of your personal faith is to ask yourself what your focus is. There is a huge difference between religion and faith in God. Religion is self-focused. Faith in Jesus is God-focused. Religious people are always talking about, well, here's what I did in an attempt to rationalize their own spirituality. Religion tells us that we need to make our own attempts to maintain our position with God. But true faith in Jesus yields everything to him depending on his mercy and grace alone. There's a vast difference. That faith then naturally leads us to the service of God and others and away from vain self-effort and self-centeredness. And so here the Sanhedrin is, is very concerned in the rejection of Jesus about themselves. What are we going to do? How are we going to maintain our position and the nation? How are we going to keep people away from Jesus and here with us? 
And just to kind of give you a little peek down the road in the history of Israel, the Sanhedrin's selfish efforts would one day be moot. They would face the personal consequences of their sin of rejection when they reached eternity. And in 70 AD, the nation would be left in ruin after Jewish revolt because Rome would sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And even in this rebellion against God, we see his mighty hand at work as a prophecy is unwittingly and ironically made concerning Jesus. Look at verses 49 through 52, and you see this prophecy take place. And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this on his own authority, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation, that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So now entering the discussion is the high priest of Israel, Caiaphas. As we study Jewish history, you would understand that this is Joseph Caiaphas. He was the high priest from 18 to 36 A.D. He is the son-in-law of a man named Annas, who served as the high priest from 6 to 15 A.D. Now, here's something that's interesting. Normally, the high priest position was a position that was held for life. However, the Romans, as they had taken over the nation, had politicized this position. So the Roman government would install and remove high priests frequently as it served their agenda in Israel. And actually, Caiaphas is one of the longest tenured high priests under the Roman Empire, under the Roman government here. So knowing that Caiaphas was the high priest from 18 to 36 AD, we can understand here something that John says. John says in verse 49, and one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year. So lest there be any confusion, John is not mixed up in what he's saying here. He's not saying that Caiaphas was a priest for only one year, but instead that phrase, being the high priest that year, is pointing out a specific year or a memorable year. And let me ask you this, what is it that John is referring to? What memorable year is it that Caiaphas is the high priest? It's the the year of Jesus' crucifixion. That's what John is saying here. Uh, By the way, Caiaphas was the high priest of that year, that, that specific year that we all remember that Jesus was crucified. And here, Caiaphas speaks up, and my goodness, does he have quite a comment to open his statement, doesn't he? He didn't go to the school of how to win friends and influence people because he speaks up and says, what? Well, you know nothing at all. This is, by the way, not uncommon from what about what you read. Um, The the Jewish historian Josephus wrote regarding the conduct of the Sadducees that they are not polite or genteel people. Caiaphas then begins to push his agenda forward and notice What he is seeking to do here is seeking to serve himself under the guise of care and concern. He argues here that it is expedient, or you could say it is profitable or better, or you could even say it's in your best interest, that one man's life be sacrificed in order to save the entire nation's fate. Since they, through their willing misunderstanding of Jesus' coming and purpose, believe that Jesus will incite insurrection and depose them from their positions of authority and power, bringing the Roman government down on them, the solution is, then, to eliminate the threat. And in so doing, 
here's what they're saying. Well, we're going to serve the, quote-unquote, greater good by eliminating Jesus from this problem. But most of all, they're serving their own greatest good, which is, well, we want to preserve our position in the nation. So Caiaphas presents here a false either-or statement. His statement is, either Jesus dies or the nation is wiped out. And instead of seeing Jesus as the answer and the savior of the world, they see Jesus as the obstacle and the problem of their own selfishness. And here in an incredible, what we can only be described as ironic twist, Caiaphas' own words have now become a prophetic statement. Because though Caiaphas chose his own words, and though he is responsible for his calloused response of rejection of Jesus, God used this choice of words in his own plans and purposes. Because as the high priest, Caiaphas is technically God's spokesman to the nation. He was the one who interceded for the people on the Day of Atonement. He oversaw all the worship and practice in the temple. And though he was anything but godly, God still used him in his position to prophesy here about the coming work of Jesus. He says here, It is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation not that the whole nation should perish. It's interesting. He said, now he said not, not his own authority, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. In just a short time, Jesus will die for the nation. Jesus came into the world through God's chosen people, Israel, to deliver them from sin as God promised. And so what Caiaphas is talking about here, seeking to serve his own self, God uses in a much greater way. Because Jesus would die in place of others. He would take the place of all who place their faith and trust in him. He would die to offer forgiveness of sense. Because forgiveness always requires payment of sin. You know, let's say that tomorrow you and I are, are going down the road and we meet up somewhere and something happens. Maybe it's not you and me, maybe it's you and somebody else, and somebody gets angry and they take a you're standing outside your car, nobody's in a car, somebody takes a brick and they throw it through the windshield of your car. Right? Now you're not in your car, okay? Would that make you upset? Yeah, probably would. And let's say that that person looked at you and said, hey, will you please forgive me? I was, I was wrong. And you forgive them. But let me ask you this. Does someone still have to pay? Well, yes, somebody's got to fix the windshield, right? Just because you forgave them, does that mean it's all happy and everybody is good and we don't? The windshield fixed itself, right? Understand this. God offers you forgiveness, but it did not come without a price. It came at the cost of the life of his son, Jesus Christ. Forgiveness has a price. And Caiaphas, though unwittingly so, prophesies of the price that will be paid for the nation of Israel, but that sacrifice for sin doesn't stop there. Jesus also died for those outside of Israel who placed their faith in him. 
He is the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. And if you, a Gentile, know Jesus as your Savior, this prophecy that Caiaphas made refers to you. And that's a very incredible thing. And then also here, I think there is a very sobering reality that we need to remember. Because regardless of your feelings about God and regardless of your response to him, you are still subject to him and he is still in control. Caiaphas rejected Jesus, yet he was still used in God's plan. His chosen actions fit within the sovereign will of God, for that is always what we see happen. And so, with that mentality solidified, the council now takes steps to define its plan of action. In verses 53 and 54, you see the plot that they hatch. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there remained with his disciples. In the previous chapters, we have seen impulsive attempts to stone Jesus. The contempt the religious leaders held toward Jesus and his followers has been observed and acted upon time after time. Now, there is an official plan that is set in motion to seek Jesus' demise here by the Sanhedrin. These men now plot to put Jesus to death And with that plot, actively seek his end. And with this knowledge, Jesus once again adjusts the location of his ministry. We are told here by the Apostle John that he moves his ministry to the city of Ephraim. Now, there's some debate on where exactly this city is, but most people seem to believe it was about 12 to 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Now, once again we see that man does not set the timetable of God's work. One author said it this way, to those with eyes to see, he, that is Jesus, was making a theological statement. No human court could force him to the cross. Jesus would go to the cross willingly, but he would do so at God's appointed time. He would give his life for all who will trust in him, but not until the time was right and God's plan would be fulfilled as God ordained. So with that plan in place, now we see the contention build in anticipation of the next major event in Israel's calendar. Verses 55 through 57, this is where we see the contention come in. In verses 55 and 56, you see the coming feast, and the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he will not come to the feast? We come now to the third and final Passover that's mentioned in John's gospel. And as one of the pilgrimage feasts, Jerusalem is once again teeming with people. Actually, some believe that more than a million people would pack Jerusalem for a feast like this. They would come early, purifying themselves as God commanded that they would make ready for the feast. And while these preparations took place, there is one burning question on the hearts of the people. Where is Jesus. Now, if you'll recall from previous passages in the book of John at these pilgrimage feasts, Jesus would typically be in the temple teaching the things of God. But here, they cannot find him. 
they seem to believe that he will not come. And we can understand why the people might believe that. In their minds, there's such a hostile stance being taken by the Sanhedrin, will he even dare to show himself? And we see here that the religious leaders are seeking to serve their own agenda through the people. In verse 57, we see the commanded allegiance. Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, that is Jesus, he should report it, that they might seize him. So while the people wondered if Jesus would show, the religious leaders now seek to deputize all the people who are there. That's really what this is. Should Jesus show up, they are to report his presence so that he may be arrested. They will seek to use this momentous occasion on the Jewish calendar as an opportunity to accomplish the goal they have set forth. It's interesting. They believe they are in control. So therefore, they seek to exercise that control. And it's a horrible thing here. Here are the people gathering early, John tells us why, to purify themselves as God had commanded. They were doing what they were supposed to do. They were following the laws of God that they may worship God at the feast the way God had commanded. And while they are doing that, their spiritual leaders are plotting murder and political self-preservation. They would seek to end the life of the sinless son of God. And so now the stage in Jerusalem is being set for the lamb of God. He will give himself as the sacrifice that will take away the sin of the world. The very Passover feast itself pointed ahead to Jesus' work. The response to the resurrection and the life is underway in this passage, and it still continues today. How you respond to Jesus' identity and work determines not only your present reality, but your eternal future. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, my personal response of faith in his life, death, And resurrection matters for eternity. Jesus' identity and his work always elicits a response. The only right response is complete trust and a total embracing of Jesus and his work. This requires humbly admitting your sin, turning from that sin, and placing undivided trust in Jesus alone. In order to find new life, you will have to give up the status quo. The status quo for any person in his natural state is sin and spiritual death. I don't care where you were born, what type of family you had, the normal natural state of every human being is sin and an eternity in hell separated from God. And as you continue in sin, and you will, you will meet an eternity of just judgment for that sin. But you can also turn to Jesus, who died in your place. His righteousness is available to you today in exchange for your sin. He took your place that he may offer you justification before God. You may be declared righteous. For a disciple, life is a call to living fervently for the Lord. In this passage before us today, we see very sinful men consumed with destroying Jesus. And I thought about this, should we not also be consumed, as consumed as they were, destroying Jesus 
as, uh, we should be as consumed with spreading his name and living for him as disciples. That same passion and fervor should burn in the hearts and lives of the followers of God. So let us respond to the resurrection and the life with faith, thanksgiving, and devotion. Father, thank you for your word and its power to change our lives today. Thank you for recording for us the thoughts, intentions, and words of these men so long ago that we may learn from them, understand them, and see in them who you are. Thank you that you are sovereign over all things, that you are good and gracious and loving towards us in that sovereignty, that you have allowed us to hear the truth of the word of God today. And now, Lord, help us to respond to that truth. Help us to see that now that we have heard the word of God, we are brought to a crossroads. For some, they are brought to the crossroads of what will they do with Jesus? Will they abandon the status quo of their lives and their sin, confess and repent of it, and turn to Jesus Christ and find eternal life in him? Or will they continue to reject him and continue in their own ways? Lord, I pray for one who is standing at that crossroads today that you would work in their heart and life and draw them to yourself. Give them the courage and the boldness to make that decision today, to place their faith in you. For disciples today, Lord, we stand again at the crossroads of what we will do with whatever it is you are working on in our hearts right now. Lord, I do not know the, the personal struggles and battles of sin that each person sitting in here is facing right now. But undoubtedly, Lord, there are many who are wrestling with something in their heart and life. I pray that you would give them the grace and the courage and the strength and the wisdom to make the right choice to submit to you to follow you. Lord, would you awaken within us a passion to reach others with the same fervor of this group that wanted to destroy you. Lord, help us not to be passively sitting by as the world spins around us and falls further into darkness, but help us to shine the light of the gospel. Lord, as we wrap up our service today, may we honor you and glorify you. Would you please bring us back to worship you here tonight? In your name we pray. Amen.